uh, let me go ahead and just read this paragraph, and, and I'll say that what he is describing is the, the experience of, of seeing the Grand Canyon. And he, he asks, I think it's in the, maybe just a little bit before this paragraph that I've uh, taken out of the, the essay, he asks, is it possible for any of us to see the Grand Canyon? Now, of course, this is one of those kind of provocative questions where it seems like the obvious answer is, well, yes, of course, right? You, you just walk up to it and there it is. Um, I should note, I've never been to the Grand Canyon. And maybe I should ask, <laughs> have any of you been to the Grand Canyon? No? All right, okay. So we, we have no first-hand... When you were two, is that... Okay, so... You don't remember, all right. Fair enough. Um, Say vicariously through my parents. Okay, all right. Well, this is actually part of Percy's um, of argument, as we will see, is that even if we have not been to the Grand Canyon, we have an idea of the Grand Canyon, right? It's been mediated to us in one way or another. So let me go ahead and read this um, this this uh, excerpt. And and the Spaniard um, he has in mind, I think, is probably uh, I think it's Cortez, right? The the Spaniards who sort of the first Europeans to make their way and exploring the Western um, uh, North, uh, North American continent stumble upon the Grand Canyon. So he says, the thing, that is the Grand Canyon, the thing is no longer the thing as it confronted the Spaniard. It is rather that which has already been formulated by picture postcard, geography book, tourist folders, and the words Grand Canyon. And of course, this is very dated, right? This is from the mid 20th century. So today we would say it's already been formulated for us um, principally by, by Instagram uh, posts, right? This is the, the visual encounter that we have is mediated to us in one way or another by social media or digital photography. Um, but he goes on, he says, if it looks just like the postcard, the tourist is pleased. He might even say, why? It is every bit as beautiful as a picture postcard, which is interesting because he's judging the actual Grand Canyon by a visual representation of the Grand Canyon. And so he, he, he feels, he goes on, Percy goes on, he feels he has not been cheated. But if it does not conform, if the colors are somber, he will not be able to see it directly. He will only be conscience, conscious of the disparity between what is and what is supposed to be. In other words, you, you sort of show up and maybe it's a cloudy day or maybe the particular uh, vista you have is not the one that you, you sort of got used to seeing in a, in a, in a picture that, or image that you really liked. And so you walk up to the Grand Canyon and then you all of a sudden are disappointed, right? Something is lacking there. And then he says, he will say later that he was unlucky, unlucky in not being there at the right time. The highest point, the term of the sightseer's satisfaction is not the sovereign discovery of the thing before him. It is rather the measuring up of the thing to the criterion of the performed symbolic complex. And that, that last um, phrase there, by that Percy just means all of those, uh, that complex of symbols that have built up in our mind around the idea of the Grand Canyon. Again, what we've seen in movies, what we've seen in Instagram posts, what we've seen in, in stories our parents have told us maybe, right? Uh, about their experience there. And I think what is really interesting um, to me about this paragraph, the, the chief thing that interests me is this idea that our experience of a place can be pre-mediated for us, right? 
uh, it can be sort of prepackaged for us in a way that keeps us from experiencing that place. Now, more note, you know, that usually happens with with what we might think of as sort of famous places, right? Places that we go to to see, uh, as tourists say, um, or that we expect something out of, and there's this symbolic complex that is built up around us, around it, in our heads, that keeps us from perceiving the thing itself. And I think this is Percy's point. The idea of a sovereign discovery of the thing before him, what he has in mind is somebody who comes and just allows the thing to be itself, right? To come into the presence of the thing, whatever it is, here it's the Grand Canyon, and, and to sort of just encounter it, to allow the thing to define itself for us. Instead, we bring all of these ideas and these assumptions and these prefabricated, excuse me, cated constructions of the thing and then we're not looking at it, we're evaluating it. And maybe this is all happening at a, at a relatively subconscious level, right? Maybe we're not even aware that this is what's happening. But all of a sudden we realize, oh, you know, that, that was disappointing or something feels missing. And the question is, what is missing? The thing is there. Where is that sense of something missing, that lack, that absence? Where does that come from? Now, I, I'll pause here to say just, uh, I think this is true not just of the famous places like the Grand Canyon. I mean, the interesting thing that, that has happened is that we have done this to all of our lives, right? Um, all sorts of things now are built up in this way for us, right? So um, maybe something that's sort of close to your experience, either in the sense that you've just passed it or maybe you're, you're coming up on it, which is college, your graduation, right? Um, and you have some idea of what a graduation is supposed to be. Uh, and more to the point, maybe you have some tacit sense of what graduation day is supposed to feel like and then graduation day comes and the reality confronts you and it and it passes and maybe your experience is at the end of the day something like well that wasn't what I was expecting right something is lacking and maybe that's because we have had this similar kind of co symbolic complex built up around the idea of graduation we've seen videos uh, we've heard people describe it, we've seen it depicted in movies, there's a kind of cultural expectation uh, that, that we await. And so we're no longer sort of being in the moment, as it were, or like uh, for a person maybe it's being in the place. Here I'm describing an experience, not a place so much, but an experience of graduation. And, and we're waiting for something and it never really comes and we don't experience the, the moment, we, we simply spend our, our moment comparing it to what we thought was it was going to be like. And I think this is true of all sorts of different experiences um, for us. Um, you know, it usually, again, maybe important experiences like a wedding, the birth of your first child, um, you know, even, even sad things like the passing of a loved one and the funeral. We, we've built up something around it through our constant documentation and representation of these events that keeps us from confronting that moment or that place uh, head-on as it were right in the in the language of percy to make a sovereign discovery of the thing so i i think that's worth pondering upon apart from questions of place but getting back specifically to the issue of place does this make sense do you, does, was does percy's um sort of description of this interruption of our experience um resonate with you or, or what any any questions or comments uh, following up on that. I feel like I experience that every time someone describes something to me to the point where I don't want them telling me what it's going to be like. Just, oh, let me just experience it. 
Yeah, right, right. Or sort of oversaturated with um, with that, yeah. I've had the experience of being that spoiler myself, saying that uh, uh, one particular visit to a location uh, was disappointing, and I felt that uh, subsequent visits were going to be just as disappointing, and then I'd be surprised by that. So it doesn't happen always when somebody does that for you or you look at a picture book. I think uh, locations uh, and people require multiple visits under all kinds of circumstances before you begin to appreciate everything and, mm -hmm. and to keep that open mind until you've had enough encounter yeah uh, is important yeah that's a good point Tim in fact um, Percy in this essay he talks about you know what are the conditions under which someone today might actually be able to, to see the thing right and, and he says it would one example he gives is is you get lost you get off of the tourist appointed path right where you have the parking lot the line the tickets go this way a little sign that says scenic view here you got to get off of that pre-programmed path get lost somewhere and then all of a sudden have it just appear when you weren't expecting it and he says that's one way that you might be able to actually see the place but i think to your point tim right repeated visits under different circumstances uh, may just do that trick for you yeah any other thought? We'll circle back to this, I think, um, as we talk about um, Aries' argument, or uh, yeah, Aries' essay, the argument in his essay. Um, but any other observations at this juncture there? Okay. All right. So let's let's look at these three paragraphs from um, Aries Schulman's piece. So he he cites here if the name Casey and fate of place rings a bell in this first line, it's because I've I've quoted Casey's. The fate of place before in this class already so uh, this is edward casey who's a, a pretty well-known philosopher of place anyway he says uh, echoing another philosopher casey adds in his 1998 book the fate of place that the perceiver's body is not a mere mechanism for registering sensations but an active participant in the scene of perception Okay, now this connects to some of what we talked about maybe two weeks ago regarding the centrality of the body and the idea that our body, our body's experience, our experience of a place as creatures with a body, who are bodies, right, is not merely of the body being a machine for registering sensations, right, where, you know, we think of ourselves almost as um, organic cameras snapping images of, of the place around us as we stay stationary. Says so that's not how, how we ought to think about it. Indeed, and this is now Ari commenting on that, indeed, the very notion of engagement means that we cannot treat places as mere sensory data, as sites. We cannot truly experience places simply by arriving and gazing at them, even if attentively. Being in a place, rather, means doing in it. In other words, being active in it. Now, I'm going to pause there for a moment because I, I want to say there is, I, I want to uh, say that there might be something that comes out of this sort of attentive seeing. So I, I really do believe that you, you can sit and look at a, at a thing carefully with expectation, patiently, and that aspects of the reality before you will gradually unveil themselves to you right so i think there is something to that experience 
Uh, I always think of um, an essay by a Harvard art historian who talked about, she was dealing with this question of attention in our present culture. And she talked about an, uh, how a, a professor's or a teacher's role now needed to be not only sort of assigning the right text or the right uh, kind of work for their students, but to help them think about how to give proper attention to the tasks that they had. In other words, to kind of uh, be active, um, what's the word, I'm, stewards of their, of their attention. And so she talked about this um, assignment that she gave them. It's a very typical, I don't know if any of you have taken art history classes, but it's a very typical art history class type thing, right? Go to the museum, pick a painting, and write something about it. But with the, uh, with the caveat that her students were not to write a thing or even look up any kind of secondary interpretations of the painting or the painter until they had sat for four hours in front of the painting. And, and of course, I, I mean, I don't know how that strikes your ears. Am I still good? Because I got my internet connection unstable message. You all hear me okay? Yeah, you're good. Okay. Um, so I don't know how that strikes your ears, uh, but I assume that for many students that must seem just um, pointless, right? Pointless and, and, uh, and torturous, right? To be sort of still before one stationary work of art, not even like a film, right? There's nothing going on. It's just a picture and you're going to sit there for four hours and just look at it. And, um, and of course, I mean, she's writing in this essay that what will often happen with their students is that they will, you know, maybe be frustrated after 20 minutes, think that, oh, I've seen everything there is to see here. But if then if they persist, if they persist, after an hour, they do actually begin to notice things, right? They, they begin to notice things about the painting that they hadn't noticed and that this continues to happen. And she actually describes one experience of this for her. So her essay is both kind of her discussion of this dynamic and then um, a kind of account of her encounter with one particular painting and, and how gradually different aspects of it revealed itself to her. And I use that word reveal, not to suggest that it's, it's a mystical sort of thing, um, but just to suggest that to really see something does often require not just uh, a, an encounter with it, but time, right? So it's, it's sight plus time that leads to actually seeing a thing, to vision. Maybe I'm, I'm kind of playing with the words a little bit there, right? But it's the idea, again, that you don't see something just by looking at it, right? Something more is required, and very often that more is attention over time. So that's all really just a caveat. I think Ari's point is right here, but I did want to just say a word for the idea of attentive looking. But, but Ari goes on to say that you have to actually do in a place, inhabit the whole place, because after all, a place is not a painting. It has depth. Um, it has dimensionality. And so he says places, um, he, he, he adds his own caveat, places are not mere bundles of stuff to do. He gives the example of activity tables in a museum to supplement the paintings any more than they are mere accretions of stuff to see. So you can't just treat it like a checklist. You come to a place and you say, well, I'm going to do X, Y, and Z here, and that'll, that'll make the place real for me. He says that place is a realm of affairs for nature and for humans. In other words, there's something organic to what is happening in a place. And you can't come and impose upon it your own ideas about what ought to happen here. 
And, and here is where he, he goes on, he says, um, the term of our first entry into a place is recognizing our individual potential to be involved in those affairs. Not just in the, in the physical dimensions of the place, but in what happens in that place and what organically transpires in that place. When we sense, and notice that he says nature or humans, right? So we're talking both about uh, cultural spaces where human being, the affairs are hum, basically human affairs, but also natural spaces where the affairs may not be, strictly speaking, human affairs, but non-human affairs, right? What happens in this ecosystem? What do the trees do? What does the river do? What do the animals in this ecosystem do? Right, and so we, we were attentive to that. And he says, um, when we sense that potential, it manifests as a sort of invitation to enter into them, right? That is to enter into these affairs. A solicitation to action, as Matthew Crawford puts it, a beckoning to discovery of the place and of ourselves through what we might encounter there and how we might face it. This is the element crucial to seeing a place, discerning what it invites us to do and answering that challenge. And I think there's really something quite profound in, in, uh, in Ari's reflections here. And, and it gets at an important distinction that I, I think is extremely vital to how, uh, to our way of being in the world, right? Which is a, a nice phrase that kind of encapsulates uh, something important, right? And, and, and what I mean by that is that, do we approach our being in the world as a matter of simply pursuing our own projects? That is to say that things appear to us only as they matter to us already that things appear to us only as raw material for our own uh, projects of mastery and self-discovery and self-realization? Or do we allow things to have an integrity of their own, right? And see things, I, what I like to oppose to this spirit of, of mastery is the spirit of receiving a gift, right? Do we perceive what is there as having an integrity of zone, as being a kind of gift to us, not that not something we are to seize and take hold of and take possession of and immediately and instrumentally put to our uses, but simply to take, to see and to observe and to see what, what is there for its own sake, not for our sake, right? And, and only in perceiving in that way do we then maybe hear what, what Ari here is describing using Matthew Crawford's phrase as a solicitation to action, a kind of invitation, right? What does this place invite me to see, to how does it invite me to participate in its life? Not as someone who comes and demands something of the place, but as someone who is ready to hear, to perceive the demands of that place on me, right? Does that make sense? I know that uh, that felt kind of um, a little esoteric, but um, I don't know, any thoughts about that distinction in, in how we experience a place or even just our general way of being? Right, it just strikes me as a more of a self-centered view versus self-centered view, and how it's like that basic principle, but we're trying to apply that to place. Yeah. Um, yeah. That, that's all I have. 
No, but that's helpful, I think, because that's a, that's a more proximate reality for us. I think it's easier for us to sort of see this, in, this dynamic in relation to people. Because we know what that's like. We know what it is to treat somebody uh, like an object and to, or to be treated as an object ourselves, where, where we understand that, that the person conversing with us isn't really interested in us, right? It, we are a means to some end, right? And, and you know, I, I think many of us might probably admit that we're guilty of doing that at points where, where we don't allow ourselves to perceive the, the person in their integrity and in their particularity. Uh, we are too ready to impose upon them our expectations of who they are, uh, but at, and, and also perhaps even to just get to what we need of them, right? Um, and we do this to varying degrees and, and with varying degrees of awareness, perhaps. But, but that's a good, good example. And there's a very different posture that, that's, that is willing to put our own self-centered interests aside and to allow that person's, uh, it, again, I, I, I keep saying this word integrity, not in the way that we usually mean it as a man of integrity or person, woman of integrity who is sort of morally upright, but rather in their wholeness, right? In their wholeness... Uh, and in their particularity, distinct as they are distinct from me, not for me, but for their own sake, right? And so, yes, and then the point is then to translate this, not just to translate that attitude, not just um, into our relations with people, but into our relations with the world as a whole, right? With places, with uh, the non-human aspects of creation, um, we don't, you know, of course we, we distinguish and we expect different things about human beings and human beings created in God's image uh, deserve a, a spe special kind of, of dignity. Um, but the whole of God's creation has an integrity that it, it, it's just that. It is derived from its relation to the creator and it has its own integrity. It's for its own sake and for its creator's sake. Um, and, and when we interrupt that or, or usurp that, it is a kind of, um, we can frame it theologically as, as a kind of a, a assumption of a godlike role in the creation that is not properly ours, right? I, I've, um, I recently read um, the first two of uh, C.S. Lewis's space, what's usually known as a space trilogy, um, Per Landra's The Middle Book and uh, Out of the Silent Planet, and then the, the last book is um, name just escaped me. Anybody want to help me out? Um, totally. I know the trilogy, but I can't think yeah, of totally blanking. Anyway, so in this trilogy, which is which is great, um, Perlandra is the name for what we usually call Venus, and and so um, the main character Ransom, um, interesting bit of trivia, modeled after J.R.R. Tolkien in real life. Uh, but Ransom goes and visits Venus. And uh, in there, you know, he, he actually confronts the hideous strength. Yes, thank you. All right, McKinley, good. Um, and um, Ransom is making this journey. He kind of recapitulates um, a temptation there with, with a first uh, man and woman uh, in, 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 in Venus. Um, and he's making his journey back to uh, the surface after having been in these dark cavernous areas. And he encounters these creatures that seem kind of completely detached from the main drama that is happening on the surface with the main characters that he's encountered there. And he makes some note, I forget how he puts it, and it's always a danger to paraphrase Lewis because you always lose the eloquence. But this idea that there are these elements of this world that 
don't exist for even the main participants or creatures in the world, which are this, this female and male um, being that Lewis has encountered. Uh, and, and that they are for God in a sense, right? That not everything in this world is for us. And this is a very uh, anthropocentric view of reality, right? Um, that we sometimes think, why this vast universe if we can never experience it? As if the point of creation were for us to experience everything, right? Uh, rather than for these things in their own way, being a delight to their creator, having, serving their own purposes for their creator. And so I think this is really a, a realization of our creaturely rather than divine status, that, that we do not in godlike fashion just impose our will and our assumptions and our desires on the whole of creation as if it was all there merely for us, right? It exists in a sense for another, right? And it, it is in some respects created by that other, by God, for us in, in some limit, in ways I think might, we might, in a limited say, sense, say it is for us and for our enjoyment and for our good, uh, but, but that we receive those things as gifts, not as possessions, right? And, and we respect them as, as gifts, and we become stewards rather than consumers of, of the creation. And so there is, I think, a whole way of life kind of embedded in this uh, that I think is really, really valuable. Um, but it certainly applies to our experience of place. Does that make sense? I kind of went far afield there, but, but I, I think it was useful to kind of take that, that longer perspective, larger perspective, I should say. And I'm happy to kind of pause for any, any reflections or comments you all have. Um, so I had two thoughts on that. My first one, I love that when you were talking about this, I was like silently cheering you in the back of my mind <laughs> and clapping underneath the screen. Because um, I think this way, actually, that it's... When I was I went to Wheaton College, it's a Christian school, mm -hmm. in the biology program, every program has a capstone course for the senior class. Um, and ours was just um, something about biology. Um, and But the point is to mix your academics with your faith and one article the articles that we read are you basically read an article or two every week and the professor hand picks which ones he or she thinks are good to read and we picked one about objectifying creation mm. and this is what we, the pattern of what we've done for centuries mm -hmm. but is it something that we really ought to do is objectify it as something that we can just take from mm -hmm. and consume um and so I'm of the opinion that we should not objectify creation in that way. Rather, we should see it on its own terms as something valuable and inherently valuable for itself mm -hmm. and for God, mm -hmm. and we get to participate in it. Right. And that's a gift. Um, something else that came yeah. up, this is the second thing I, that I thought of. When you talk about stewards rather than consumers, um, thinking about, I started thinking about the garden again. Mm -hmm. and how Adam and Eve were tasked with keeping and tilling the garden, mm -hmm. but they were permitted to eat from any of the fruit. And so even though they were really just there to take care of it, they were, God wanted them to participate in it also and share in his delights. Mm -hmm. um, that made me think of the sacrifice where mm -hmm. in Leviticus, we give a tithe of what 
of the animals that we have. Mm-hmm. Um, and there is the symbolism of, or the problem of death and how there must be a death for um, atonement. Mm-hmm. But then also it's giving back to God what he's given us. Mm-hmm. And yet we get to participate in it too by consuming it. Right. Uh, that was actually required for a lot of sacrifices right. was you right. have to eat it now. Yeah. <laughs> right. So, I yeah. just thought that was a really, those were all really interesting connections. Yeah, yeah. No, absolutely. Yeah. I think there's something really rich to develop there, yeah. Good, good. Thank you, David. Sure. Any other? I, I was thinking Yeah. I, I was thinking that how much of an effort it takes for a person to be able to appreciate a place or a, a, an activity that's taking place in that location that uh, all of the intellectual energy it takes to understand what you're encountering and as you deepen that that uh, understanding the appreciation of the place becomes greater and greater and it's, it's possible to not know the first thing about uh, the animals or the plants that are in a location they just seem dull and, and, and placeholders to you until you begin to understand the interrelationships that have nothing to do with you but are intricate and and uh, deeply um, interwoven but you don't understand that until you've made the effort to uh, encounter things at a level that is unnatural and and is not um, instrumental in any way yeah doesn't have to be Yeah. yeah Yeah, and and, and um, did you say unnatural just before instrumental? Is that? I can't remember what I said. Okay, yeah, no, I I've often been in that place, right? So it it's I thought you had said sort of it's unnatural for us to give this kind of um, care, attentive care to a place, and and I wonder, yeah. yeah, and I wondered, is it is it unnatural? Because unnatural suggests this is just the default mode for human beings forever and ever, right? Or is this something unique to the, the modern sensibility, right? Long-standing modern sensibility, right? Going back to, um, you know, say, uh, you know, four, four or five centuries where gradually we, we, nature loses, well, creation becomes nature for one thing, right? Uh, and it loses a sort of quasi-sacramental um, value for us, right? It's no longer, uh, something pointing beyond itself to God or understood as something we receive from God's hand, but it is just, again, a sort of raw material. So we, the, the unnaturalness is actually a kind of um, a cultural accommodation to a, a way of looking at the world that we can resist and maybe return to uh, a, what may be a more natural posture towards the world, right? One that, that, that doesn't see it principally as um, again raw material for human projects um, I'm not sure but it, it seems like maybe that that's part of what's what's going on there I wanted to let me yeah, train oh go ahead Michael no go ahead I was gonna say quickly like I think in terms of how natural it is it's like and obviously it's not as it should be but our corrupt nature is to focus inward mm-hmm. and to ignore what's out yeah. there <coughs> And then I think that's simply exacerbated by <coughs> our current, the modern moment we're in, where 
you know, we can look around at all these places on our phone. Yeah. Right? They're just like, it's just something to see. And like, you don't have to be there and be doing things there to, you know. Yeah. It's not a real experience of the place. Right. And that's a good segue because I I wanted to um, kind of come back to to this very um, concrete artifact, which is our, our GPS. Now, when, when Ari wrote this, and this goes, you know, the segue there is sort of the idea of the digital devices and how they mediate our, our experience of place, our perception of the place, our ability to attend to a place in this way. So when Ari writes his article, I think the main way that most people were encountering GPS was still this little thing, little garment that you buy and you put on your dashboard, right, that kind of thing. Now, of course, our cell phones have become our, our, um, our GPS devices by and large, or it's sort of built into the car, but we, we have them with us at all times. And I recently, actually now it's probably been two years, where I, I met someone, um, a scholar I follow online, made a uh, just a quick comment about how our ability to sort of geolocate at any given moment, given our smartphones, is doing for our experience of place what the, the watch did for our experience of time, right? And, and again, the, the, con, the point of contrast is, is what we need to pay attention to because we become used to just, you know, always being able to check the time. But, but we remember then that there was a time uh, before the invention of, of a watch, say, when you could only occasionally sort of place yourself very specifically in the day, right? You, you generally had a sense of sunrise, Sunset. It's interesting. I'm, I'm uh, some of you know reading through Dante now with another reading group here at the study center, and it's through these sort of quarters of the day, right? These three-hour segments that basically just correspond to the angle of the sun, right? So you know, for uh, for the first quarter of, of daylight hours, right, the sun rises. Uh, what would that be? Not, not 45 degrees, right? And then 90 degrees, and then another 45, and then finally down to sunset. So it's a 180-degree circuit. And those correspond to roughly three-hour units, um, and that's it. That's sort of your, your general awareness of where you are in the day. You know, nobody nobody in Dante's day was saying it's it's twelve fifty-five, right? Because there's no uh, tool to help us do that. Um, the hourglass wasn't going to do that for you, right? Uh, and so our ability to locate ourselves very precisely in time in the day, given this sort of numeric division of, of um, you know hours and minutes and seconds is relatively novel in human experience. And so this uh, scholar, Deb Chakra, was saying that, you know, just had this passing thought that, wow, we can all of a sudden do that with universal, uh, ubiquitous uh, GPS, right? At any given moment, I can, I can sort of click a button on my phone and sort of know where I am. So um, when Ari was writing this again, GPS was, I think, not quite so saturated. Um, it wasn't quite with us everywhere in the way that it might be now. But nonetheless, uh, it was still a pretty common thing. It wasn't. It wasn't new to the to the cultural scene. So this middle paragraph, um, and I'll kind of just move quickly through these two two paragraphs. He says, "Central to the demand to move in a place is the demand to find one's way through it. In order, in other words, you you get to know a place by answering the demand to to just figure out where you are in it and make your way through it on your own, right? Uh, on your own resources. Through this struggle to find our way." place gains an experiential shape. And I, though well, let me keep reading before I interject. The, the features of a particular place begin not just to look different from the features of another place, but to feel different and mean something different. Go to a city and find your way to somewhere new. 
take a walk or drive through the streets of Washington, D.C., and you will begin to feel how it is a different place from Austin or San Francisco or Paris or New Orleans, how your possibilities for action are different, and so too your possibilities for being. Finding your way around is how you begin to escape the realm of mere location and sight, resting from it, place, and that elusive sense of place, right? So Ayer's point here is that you, what part of what he's arguing is that GPS kind of undermines this. I'll give you a very personal, uh, not, not personal as in private, but uh, my own sort of experience with this. Um, so for a while, and, and still actually to this day, my wife liked to take, uh, my wife and I like to take a trip to Asheville, North Carolina. And uh, several years ago we found uh, these um, little cottages that we sort of rent and they're uh, just outside the city. And so the first time that I went up there, it was around this time actually, and, and I borrowed one of these little clunky Garmin things and we drove up there and I used that to get around and I you know, entered places. And, and I felt like I, I, I couldn't shake my dependence on it. I, I always needed to be looking at it or listening to it in order to make my way, or even after I'd been there a few days. So that went on for a couple of years. And then I think it was the third year where I was becoming more attentive to these issues where I decided I was not going to take a GPS. I was not going to use it. So I'd do it the old-fashioned way, right? I'd look at a map. I'd jot some directions down or just memorize them if they were relatively simple. And then go from there. And, and so I, I began to do that. And, and it, it was really a remarkable thing. I, 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 I don't know how else to say it except that I felt like I came to know the place in a way that I hadn't given my previous visits, right? I could find my way. I knew where things were. Um, I felt a kind of freedom, uh, really, right? The, the GPS engenders dependence. Once it breaks, you feel lost um, and like you can't go anywhere. But um, if I know my way, if I come to discover my way around the place, no one takes that from me, right? There's, there's nothing that's gonna break that's gonna make me feel suddenly lost in that place, right? So it's a kind of, not ownership, but um, um, a kind of capacity, a capability that I cultivate. And in that way, I come to know that place. I feel like I have this sort of elusive sense of place. Um, and Eric doesn't go into this kind of detail, but I, but I want you to, th the question may be, well, why does this happen, right? It, you know, it's not as if the GPS is sort of this magical thing that weaves a, a cloud around your awareness of the place. It actually happens, in, I think, in a very uh, simple way. And if you think about uh, the, the fancy word is the, the phenomenology of the experience of, of finding your way with directions or with GPS, um, I think it'll make some sense. So if I jot down a set of directions, see you, Michael, thank you, yeah, gotcha. If I jot down a set of directions and I follow those, uh, I have to look for those things, right? If I have directions that say turn on 34th Street, I have to be aware of the descending streets until I get to 34th, right? I am active in, in the work of perception. Whereas if I had the GPS turned on, what do I do? I sort of check out, I'm, you know, make sure I'm not hitting anybody in front of me, of course, right? But um, I, I'm waiting for the voice to say to me in the pleasant British accent, uh, you know, 34th Street is in 100 yards. Turn here, you know, or if I miss it, you know, redirecting, redirecting, whatever it says, right? So. I'm, I'm not actively engaged. My attention is not on where I am. My attention is on instructions that I'm receiving and then passively following, right? And so I become less aware of places because I am not actively perceiving those places for the sake of making my way around it.
Uh, so I think that's part of what, what happens when this device interjects into our, 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 the work of wayfinding, of finding a place. Um, now, we have just four minutes here, and so what I'd like to do is quickly read this last paragraph, and then we, whatever questions we have, we'll, we'll get to. Um, so Ari goes on, he says, it is tempting to believe that the trouble is simply that our digital technology has until recently been itself blind to place, and that consequently, GPS and location awareness offer a way to reconnect with places. But this hope is belied by that particular habit, peculiar habit of the user of GPS and location awareness technology. He checks first with the device to find out where he is and only second with the place in front of him to find out what here is. Consider the example of a hiker who is guided by GPS on a location awareness app and who enters a valley where the, his device has no reception. Will he suddenly feel alienated, as if his connection to the place has been lost? Or is it likelier that he will feel a nervousness that is actually a quizzical sense of excitement, the excitement of unknown risk and adventure, experiences that can be found now only at the fringes? Suddenly he is faced with the thrilling anxieties and possibilities of being in a place. Location awareness, especially when it becomes augmented reality, enshrines the individual in a shell of fancy where he may distract himself from these anxieties, where he is free from them, but at the cost of what he is free for, for of the freedom given to him as an earthly being to inhabit the world and as a human being to forge his path through it. Um, now again, there's a lot going on there. I'll let you kind of think about that and maybe even revisit Aries' essay on your own. But I thought that that was um, this interesting distinction between uh, checking to find out where one is and only later actually looking at the place in front of us to find out what here is. And the thing that echoed in my mind thinking about this is um, citing Lewis twice today, this time from the Narnia series. And it is, um, it's in one of the books where Eustace and Jill are the main characters. And it is this question of what a star is. Does anybody remember this, right? And he's, and, and, and one of the characters is talking about a star and somebody says, well, it's a ball of gas. And, and I forget exactly how he puts it. I wanted to look it up right before class started, but I didn't get to it. But um, I think it's Aslan that says something like, that, that is a, a definition of a star, but it's not what a star is. As if there's something deeper, more real than this kind of description of its function. Um, and in this way, this distinction between where one is and what the here is, I think, is important. Uh, and, and there's a difference between sort of knowing your coordinates, as it were, having a, a map eye view of, a God's eye view of your place in a, in a location, your, your situated particular location in a place, rather, and knowing what that place, in fact, is. And I think that's an important um, distinction to bear in mind. So having rushed through to the end of that, let me pause and uh, any, any final thoughts or comments along any of these lines? I used to use uh, USGS topographic maps to take imaginary uh, uh, hikes before I would get out and actually visit the yeah. place. I would take the maps along, but you can know a place uh, much better if you have some premonition of what's going to be. Yeah. Uh, encountered there right so I, I, I can see the, the excitement and the thrill and the anxiety 
of going somewhere and, and uh, what's on the map doesn't seem to match what you're experiencing just now. They go, oh, maybe I'm lost. Most of those maps were made from aerial photography mm-hmm. uh, not from uh, satellite images. Mm-hmm. So they were subject to some some errors here yeah. and there, but they were always exciting to pull out and, and encounter places you'd been and you go and get the map and say, oh, I didn't know there was a lake there or there was a street yeah. there or uh, there's a bunch of buildings and uh, abandoned uh, farms over here. Yeah. It, and it opens up possibilities to uh, appreciate a place uh, by by that map. And I think GPS could do that too. I would uh, say that you encounter it by encountering it first with GPS. You lose some of that thrill. It's it can still be uh, managed. Yeah, and, and I think you're right. I think um, and it's worth making this point. Um, on the one hand, Ari does in this article say how you know the different ways of getting to know a place, and one of them is first to sort of get that aerial perspective. So if you're working your way through a city, you have some kind of frame of reference for where you are in it. Um, but that's a very different thing than carrying the GPS that tells you yeah. where to go. And, and, and I think it's, it's a question of whether we submit ourselves to the um, affordances of the GPS or whether we submit the GPS to our own um, intentions and, and, and desires. So if we know this about a place and we know that what is required to, incur, to encounter a place, we can perhaps use the GPS as a kind of tool without... Uh, submitting ourselves to its uh, ordinary functionality, which, which, by which I mean that ordinarily what it invites you to do is simply to enter where you want to go and then you just listen to the directions and follow its path, right? It, it, and, it, and if we resist that, obviously there are places, there are times in life where you just need to get to a place, right? So, of course, right, under those circumstances, just plug in the address and get where you need to go, right? But, but when that becomes our default mode of experience, I had a friend in Orlando we have been there for many, many years, always used GPS to get around and felt completely paralyzed to get anywhere in the city despite the fact that he'd lived there um, you know, for five or six years. And, and so there is, um, there is a way of using these tools without becoming their, their servants, right? It's the idea, Henry Thoreau's line about not becoming tools of our tools, right? And, and I think that that is um, a, good, a good reminder, Tim, so thank you for that. All right, guys. Well, good. I think this was important stuff, and I think it also, I'm, I'm glad we had that extended discussion about this way of being in a place, because that, that does get, I think, closer to the heart of why this stuff matters anyway. Um, so thank you for entertaining all that, and, um, and we'll, we'll see you next, next week.